0: In my study, <clears throat> I read a commentary, and there's a commentator, and he traces this long argument between probably four or five different commentators on the exact makeup of the audience at the Church of Galatia. And so he traces it, how many of them would have been native Galatians, how many would have been uh, displaced, what was the Hellenistic culture, what was the Jewish culture, this mixed makeup of the church. and. The debate surrounded around this, would the people there at the church be offended that Paul called them Galatians if they weren't actually from Galatia? So after maybe two or three pages of tracing these arguments back and forth, <clears throat> the author I was reading concluded, I don't know that it really matters if they would be offended by being called Galatians, because I'm sure they were offended for being called idiots. And that's how it starts, oh foolish Galatians would be like me calling you a bunch of backward, stupid Pittsburghers and then wondering if you'd be offended that I called you Pittsburghers. Um, no, the, the offense lies somewhere else. Well, maybe some of you would be offended by a But Paul has been exercised for a lot of this letter. It's an early letter that Paul... Uh, writes probably his earliest epistle is shortly after his ministry has begun and the gospel is going forth and this birth of the church and the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forth. And we see his, sort of, his frustration coming out from the very beginning of this letter. After a short greeting, he begins in verse 6 of chapter 1, if you remember, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and turning to a different gospel. Here he begins, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He'll say again in verse 3, O foolish Galatians, what is with you people? But he pulls back a little at the beginning here, before he just attacks them for being morons. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What is it that has has caught your attention? What is it that has turned your gaze away from the gospel? We see in verse 3, here here is going to be sort of the crux of the matter in verse 3. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so here's the crux of the matter is that what they received through the Spirit, that is their conversion, that by faith accepting the gospel message begun by the Spirit... How have they so quickly deserted that, turned from that, and now are looking to continue in this Christian life by works of the flesh? That's the heart of the matter. So he asks, who has, who has bewitched you? Who has taken what was given to you and so quickly turned it, your mind? Who, who has sucked you into this way of thinking? He is more than suggesting that beyond just some false teachers, what is happening here is the great deceiver himself has deceived these people. The great deceiver himself has has snuck in and the gospel has gone forth and there's, there is a response to it, a response of faith. And now this deception has has come in, and without them even realizing it, without them knowing in their mind that that they've pivoted, they've taken a turn, they've moved over here, without even knowing it, they've been caught in this false teaching, that they don't necessarily know they're believing something different now, they're moving in a different direction, in how they approach God, and how they seek righteousness before God. And I think we learn right off the bat that this is how the great deceiver works. He works this way from the garden, he works this way. In the early church, he works this way with us. It's not that he is working. He doesn't even necessarily get the people to reject their initial conversion. We'll see that. It's not that he's taking it and be like, no, that wasn't real. He kind of lets that exist. But then he deceives. He moves in through false teaching. He provides a way that seems safer than faith. Because it's more tangible. It's more measurable. I, I can kind of create the, what needs to happen. It can be built by man and it can be attained by man and it can be measured by man. And so it turns towards legalism and, and law keeping and accomplishments. And he just moves it slightly, and he continues to move the goalposts to the point where they don't even know they've necessarily moved. And so Paul says, "Who's who has caught your gaze? Who has bewitched you? Who has turned you aside so quickly?" And Satan works that way; that the evil one works that way among us. It, it, he comes in, and it's not like you just one moment believe and then you reject the next second. It, it's just slow fade. That you know, it's not that important. The details of it. The gospel is not that important. You keep kind of moving and moving on what's important and what's not. And before you know it, you you have a new God that you've created and a new way, an alternate Savior, in order to reach that God. So that's why we teach and that's why we catechize and that's why we've got to keep coming back to the Word because it matters that we're not easily bewitched, easily deceived and they move aside. And so Paul continues here. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now there's a little turn of phrase, a little play on words here in um, the Greek that you don't necessarily see in the English. You get the meaning of it. But I do think to see the play on words helps a little bit. The idea of being bewitched literally is to catch your eye or to capture your gaze? Like if you think of like a cartoon when someone goes into a trance and they got the swirly eyes going, they're kind of, you know, hypnotized. Th- that idea, of who has caught your eye? Who has locked onto your gaze? What, what, what have you turned aside to and become captured and enamored with? And then Paul says, because... As he continues, because it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So he's not saying that they were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. He's not saying that he has you know, created some sort of portrait for them, visually for them to see. But he's returning to this idea of it was before their eyes he was publicly portrayed. The idea of clearly, vividly set forth. It was posted, a vivid picture was painted to you through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it turned your gaze to, it It captured your eyes, it turned your gaze, you were locked in on it. He painted this picture of Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. He preached the gospel with power. And they saw, it, 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 it captured their eyes, it, it brought them in. And again, it immediately informs us what a minister of the gospel is called to do. Not just recite some truths, not just provide mere facts for you, but to labor to paint a picture of Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. To bring you time and time again back to the gospel. To, To create this vision for you that takes your eyes and it locks in and you are captured by it and your heart goes, goes towards this picture of Christ crucified. Paul says, I labored and I did this. John Calvin he comments on this verse. He says, let those who discharge aright the ministry of the gospel learn. Not merely to speak and declaim, but to penetrate into the consciences of men, to make them see Christ crucified and feel the shedding of His blood. That's our labor as a pastor. That's your labor as a teacher. That's your, your labor as a parent to your children, to, to one another, to yourself as you preach, that you would preach the gospel to yourself. You would see Jesus Christ and you would coming back to the gospel. That's, again, the liturgy that we follow. That's why it's repetitive. That's why we do the same things when we come to church. And, And the songs don't stray very far away from Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. And the psalmists point our minds to a Savior, point our hearts to a rescuer. And the catechism and the creeds, they point to that. And the words were opened as it's opened, it quickly goes to the gospel because that is what is needed. That's what captures our heart, captures our gaze. The preaching of the word opens the eyes so that then, hearing with faith, people respond. And so, Paul says, I, I preached and I proclaimed Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It captured your heart. You, res- you heard it and you responded in faith. But then so quickly, something else took your gaze and captured your heart. And now you're following it. And we'll see it's that legalism. It's that law keeping. It's coming back to the ceremonies. And that is at the heart of what is happening right here. So verse 2 and verse 3 then go on to explain a little further for us how this shift has taken place. And he says this in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? A rhetorical question. At this point, he's, he's labored long, and they're not even necessarily denying that when, when Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ and Him crucified... It was then they received the Spirit. They heard the gospel. They heard Jesus Christ proclaimed, and they responded in faith. There's nothing they did in that moment for their justification. This is how it began. The gospel was proclaimed, and they responded with faith. They're not necessarily denying that, but he attaches now the Spirit to it. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by the hearing with faith? It's this initial salvation, turning to the Lord, where the Spirit is given. Paul is not speaking here of some sense in which they were justified, and then, you know, they went so long trying to do stuff, and eventually the Spirit was given to them. No, to be regenerate, to, to be justified, to turn your eyes on Christ is to receive the Spirit. Listen to Romans 8. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He's saying, by faith you have the Spirit. You you accept that testimony. It was given to you, not by anything you did, but by the hearing with faith. So he establishes that. How did you first receive this gospel? And then he asks this question then in verse 3 which again is the the, the point of the sermon. Are you so foolish then, having begun by the Spirit, we accept that. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If we accept we were begun by the Spirit, who's bewitched you? Who's captured your gaze? When, how, why do you think now you're going to cast that off? And be perfected. Walk the Christian life. Stand before the Lord at the end of your life. Being counted righteous in Him. By any other means and by the same means by which you entered into this relationship. You entered into this covenant. The way you were saved by faith. How come you have shifted to works of the flesh? So just two things I want to point out. And then we'll move to the table. And it's this. First, they are getting the basis of their sanctification wrong. They're misunderstanding their sanctification. What it means to be sanctified. But really, more importantly, is not only are they misunderstanding their sanctification, but that misunderstanding of sanctification, they're trying to replace the righteousness that comes... Through faith alone. They're trying to replace their justification with sanctification. As if they were justified, they set that aside. Now how do I stay right with God? Well, law. Works, ceremony, whatever it is that might come in. How do I stay right with God? They're, they're misunderstanding sanctification. And then not only that, they're placing the wrong import, the wrong significance, the, the, the wrong end to their sanctification. That It is sanctification them that earns, that, that makes them continue to be right with God. Paul, will, as he goes on here through Galatians. By the time we get to to 5 and 6, you'll see how important growing in holiness and sanctification is. That your faith out will work out. He'll say in chapter 5 that you walk in step with the Spirit. And then he'll begin to develop what that looks like. And he lists those fruits of the Spirit, the things you stay away from. And so he is is moving in that direction and will get there. But again, as Adam has has mentioned, the impulse is to want to bring that in early as the grounds for our righteousness before God. That we take those works, we take the fruit of the Spirit, and we think that's the reason that we're right before God. That is what they're doing here. That is what the people are doing. Just to review the definition of justification and sanctification so we're clear on it. If you remember, as we've looked at for the last few weeks, justification, that we are declared righteous As we, by faith alone, receive the accomplishments or the righteousness earned by another, namely Jesus Christ. The idea of an empty vessel, by faith, receiving the accomplishments, the work of Jesus Christ. The definition of sanctification is this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live unto righteousness. It's that ongoing life of a Christian, of of by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh, of of growing in righteousness and holiness, of seeing the fruits of the Spirit to your account, of pursuing the Lord, obeying those commands, of, of seeking justice and mercy and love. All of that is a necessary consequential part of the Christian life. And he's saying, but that's not how you stand justified before the Lord. another way to speak of sanctification would be just to look back in chapter 2 at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By faith, living life in union with Christ. So there's, there's three mistakes here that they made of their view of sanctification. One is that th- this righteousness of sanctification is produced by works of the flesh and not by the Spirit. You can tell as he gives it an either or. He said, are you turning away from the Spirit in order through the works of the flesh to see righteousness come? Your, your misunderstanding of sanctification is wrong. If you think you're growing in grace, is not a work of the Spirit through faith? We are told without faith it's impossible to please God. We're told that our works are are, are willed and given and energized and accomplished through the Spirit. Secondly, they're mistaken in their sanctification that it came by works of the flesh and not by the hearing with faith. That is that they could hear the gospel and that's what they needed for justification to enter into this relationship. But then they don't need the gospel anymore. Now it becomes uh, this to-do list. Now it becomes the ceremonies. Now it becomes the work. So not only was it the work, my flesh, not the spirit. Now it's, it's the set of rules, the set of, of laws and commands that is going to continue my growing in righteousness. Not the hearing of faith. It's this idea that they needed the gospel to be saved, but then they don't need the gospel anymore. And we're told again and again, whether you're sitting there and you haven't by faith believed the gospel or you've been a believer for a long time, you need the gospel right now. You need the gospel again and again and again. That we return to this truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and painting that picture that's going to move us in our fight against sin. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him risen that is going to move us forward in our sanctification by faith, hearing that. To add the fruits of the Spirit to to our lives, to follow in that kingdom living of caring and looking out and loving others. All of that comes through the Gospel. It's not that you receive it by faith, set it aside, and now just work really hard. Paul tells us in other places to work really hard? Yes. But not in order to have a right standing with God. Not in order to be justified. And so thirdly, their misunderstanding is this, is that their sanctification has replaced justification as the basis of their righteous standing before God. It's that picture of, of the vine and, and the branches on the vine. And, and there would be this idea of, yes, I was engrafted in the vine. That was my justification. That was my life, faith in this. But now I'm just looking to the fruit. And what justifies me now is the fruit. And so when I need assurance, I just look at a fruit. And the problem is then I want to know, well, I compare my fruit with the other guy's fruit. and Am I producing it? And how am I producing it? Oh, and it becomes this focus here. Instead of realizing, no, the reason that that fruit exists and and the reason that, that you are pursuing godliness moving forward is because you are connected to the vine, because you are in union with Christ. Your right standing before God is always based on the work and accomplishment of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, who's bewitched you? You were captured By the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you're captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You begin to realize the seriousness of your sin. And your inability to be right with a perfect and holy God. And then the grace and mercy extended. That there is a way that someone else will intercede. And they will take the wrath. They will stand and the wrath will be poured out on them. And I will know grace and I will know favor. And be invited into this family. And to be counted as righteous, and you saw that picture and your heart was moved, then why so quickly did we set that aside and move to now, in order to keep my right standing with God, let's just set the gospel aside and bring back works of the law? We know that this. It is a wrong way to look at justification and sanctification in the relationship. Sanctification does follow justification. Like I said, if it makes you nervous to feel like, how come we're not talking about the good works and the fruit yet? We'll get there. It's just a different conversation. Sanctification will follow justification, but it does not replace it as our righteousness and our right standing before God. John Piper describes it as the debtor's ethic. This idea that somehow because of God's grace and mercy, now we work really hard to repay that grace and mercy. And he points out the problem is is that the harder you work to do it, all that proves is the more God's grace in your life producing that fruit, energizing that work. You just go further and further into debt. Others kind of call it... A a double justification, maybe you've heard that phrase or not, but it's the idea that even your best moment, you think of your most self-sacrificing time, go ahead and feel good about yourself for a minute, you know, when you just were all in, totally self-sacrificing, you wanted to tell people about it, but you didn't, you know, just, you didn't post it on Instagram, you know, nothing, It, it was just... Even in that, the best moment of your best acts of kindness and love need to be showered with mercy and grace in order for God to receive them. In order to be added to your account. In order for them to be good and righteous before the Lord. Because they're not perfect. Because they are are still come from mixed motives. And they have hints of selfishness. And they have hints of pride. And there's impatience in them. I'm not saying that God doesn't see them and rejoice over them. He does. He delights in those works. He he requires those of us. And He delights in them. And those acts of kindness, those acts of love, are warmly received as acts of worship before God. But only because His grace redeems even those. So you are called to go forth and and serve and act in those ways. And all it is is a testimony of the Spirit through faith working through you. And the the fact that they are before the Father and they are received so warmly and they they are given to your account as righteous and good is because the Father is gracious and merciful and through the works of the Son even redeems your best moments that are imperfect. Unrighteous. He continues now. I'll just hit quickly the last two verses. <clears throat> he says this this way of thinking, of of thinking. I enter through faith, but then I, on my own, now I strive, and that's how I am right with God. It, not only does it contradict the work of Christ, but it also contradicts the evident work of the Holy Spirit. Let's read verses 4 and 5. He says, Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so it's this idea, the testimony of the Spirit, that they heard Jesus Christ proclaim. They heard the gospel. They responded in faith that there was a cost to that for them. There was a cost in the secular world around them of turning away from from any sort of of Caesar worship. There was a cost from their Jewish friends and in the heritage that they were were turning away from Moses and the law of Moses. They were putting their faith in this work of this radical blasphemer, Jesus Christ. There was persecution and hardship and a cost to that. And in the moment when they were captured by the gospel. By the hearing of the gospel and responded with faith, that the Spirit gave them uh, the the faith. He he empowered them to be able to walk through that suffering and to believe in Jesus Christ, to take on the hardship, to take on everything that came with it because it was worth it, this gospel message. And he's saying, was it in vain? Did you believe it? Did you go through all that suffering and hardship only to immediately as you embrace it, turn back and put yourself back under the law? Put yourself back under the false teachers and these ceremonies that this is what is giving you righteousness. Did you suffer all these things in vain? It contradicts the testimony of the Spirit that He supplied everything that was needed for you in that moment of suffering. In the early church, as the gospel went forward, the, the gifts of the Spirit were poured out among God's people. And you see miracles, you see th- these gifts uh, uh, assigned to and coming alongside the gospel as it goes forth and working powerfully, especially in those early days of the church. And he's saying, you've seen the, these miracles, you've seen the, the, the gifts that have been given, you've seen how they have testified to the gospel. Are you denying that that was by the hearing of faith? Or are you saying it was some works of the law that produced this sort of spirit-empowered work? And so he looks at them and says, you know this is true, because the gospel was painted and you responded by faith. And now to reject it and look inward, look anywhere else beside Jesus Christ, is to contradict and deny the work of Jesus Christ. And not only that, it contradicts and it denies the work of the Spirit in you now. Like I said, we'll grow and we'll develop that, and then we'll begin to see what it means to walk and step with the Spirit, and the fruits of the Spirit, and what that produces in a life. And it's a testimony to a hearing with faith. It's very easy for us to be, confuse those categories of justification and sanctification. Because we speak of being justified with faith, but then it's, it's easy, as, it's tempting as a preacher to give a do, to-do list because, you know, it seems to get results maybe. But, but that we move away and begin to think, I am called to good works, I am called to fruit, I am called to this. But we begin to shift in our thinking that we turn away from preaching the gospel to ourselves to see the Spirit produce that in us, and we begin to think, this is the basis for my righteousness now. That I continue in this. And that is not the case. If you remember, if you were in Sunday school with us, we looked at Philippians. There were two illustrations given, and they were always kept separate. There is the race that is won, and that run, and that speaks to our sanctification. And it speaks of God empowering, and it, but, but it speaks of sparing of no effort, of striving after the Lord. And we talked about the idea of sanctification and perseverance. But there is a different illustration given for our justification. And it's this accounting balance sheet. And Paul lists everything he has done. By birth, who he is. By education, what he has done. By zeal, how badly he wanted it. How righteous he was. And when he puts it in the accounting sheet, he says it's less than zero. It's nothing at all. In comparison to knowing Christ. To be found in him by faith when it comes to justification, that is the illustration. That the best you have to offer is filthy rags. And God calls us to a life of fruitfulness and he receives it joyfully and it's pleasing to him. But only because he's redeeming even those best works. We need to be faithful as your pastors to keep painting a picture of Jesus Christ for you. That that continues to capture your heart. That's what moves you along. That's what motivates and, and that's what keeps your gaze. That we'd all be wary of deceit that sneaks in, that just starts to kind of blur the lines and move it over until pretty soon we have a different Savior, a different hope. The table serves us so well in this pursuit. It's exactly what it does as we come and we remember the body of Jesus Christ, the, the, the suffering of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ offered. We remember it. We participate in it. Our faith is strengthened as we turn from resting from our works, resting from our striving, and we turn and think, where is our hope? Where is our faith resting in this, in the accomplishments, in the work of Jesus Christ? That's what strengthens us in our battle against sin. Not me telling you to fight harder, try harder. But turning again to the cross and by being being strengthened by the Spirit to move forward and putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Pursuing Christ. May we be careful to take justification, to take sanctification seriously but never start to substitute anything for our righteousness before God outside of Christ, freely offered in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it ministers to us. We thank you that it can move powerfully by your spirit. The hearing with faith, Lord, is is effectual and effective. Lord, as we pursue holiness or might it never become for us then the basis for our acceptance for you might we never get caught in that trap of comparing fruit with one another and looking to that but always looking back to jesus christ and his accomplishments as the only source of our righteousness lord we thank you that you are gracious to receive our acts of worship and offering of praise today that that's you're joyfully receiving it, not because it's offered perfectly, but because even that is covered by the free gift of Jesus Christ and His righteousness earned for us. Will you join with me in the Lord's Prayer as we move to our time around the table? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, a few notes, comments as we go to the table. First, we invite everyone afterwards. We always have a time of fellowship as we share in community with one another after we celebrate the table. So we want that.